Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales. We've got something exciting happening today. We've got a new host. Dr Thomas Cromarty is one of our paediatric trainees based here in Wales. He's been helping out with Dragon Bites from the sidelines since the very beginning, but now he's joining us with hosting duties. Today he's going to be discussing the culture of microbiology with one of our microbiology consultants, Dr Gavin Forbes. Dr Forbes is also the lead for paediatric microbiology in the University Hospital of Wales and together they're going to be discussing how and when to use blood cultures and urine cultures and little tidbits that we should probably all know about them. Anyway, take it away Tom. Hi, I'm Tom. I'm a new Dragon Bites host. Hi, I'm Gavin Forbes. I'm one of the microbiology consultants in Cardiff, and I'm the microbiology lead for paediatrics. Okay, so um, today I think we're going to cover the uh, culture of microbiology. Very good. So hopefully, um, Gavin, we can start with actually just asking a bit about yourself and how you got into microbiology and and how others who are interested in it might find out a bit more. Yeah, sure. Uh, So as a bit of background, uh, I'm 34. I've been a consultant for just over two years. Um, I came to microbiology in a sort of fairly roundabout way, um, did my medical school, qualified, did the beginning of my foundation year, didn't really enjoy it, felt like the job that I was doing wasn't particularly satisfying and mm. doing all the out of hours was really painful. <laughs> Briefly thought about quitting medicine, but couldn't really think of what else I wanted to do. Um, <laughs> so I spoke to my education supervisor and we looked at you know, things that I enjoyed about my job and something that wouldn't allow, you know, mean I was in hospital for 13 mm. hours at a time overnight. Came on microbiology and did quite a lot of infection stuff. My first couple of foundation jobs were in um, orthopaedics, so dealing with prosthetic joints uh, and diabetes. So I did lots of diabetic foot and I found the infection stuff interesting. Yeah. Um, so I applied for microbiology training straight after F2, which you used to be able to do back in the old days. <laughs> uh, didn't get in, did a year as a trust grade in acute medicine in London, which was great and exposed to all sorts of infection related mm. stuff that I didn't see as a foundation doctor in Devon. Um, Got in the second time. Uh, at the, the time I joined microbiology, it was a five-year run-through, so SD1 to SD5, okay. all out at the end. Um, and I came here to train, well, I've trained in Cardiff, consultant in Cardiff, and it's been great. I've been here just over seven years now. Okay. For anyone wanting to join microbiology now, the training program is different. There's a different pathway into it. Um, so now uh, you have to have done your core medical competencies during CT1, CT2. Mm-hmm. Get your MRCP, and then you can go into the ST3 training program, which for the first two years is called combined infection training. So you do your ST3, ST4 in microbiology and infectious diseases, and you can then subspecialise from ST6 onwards. And the length of your higher specialist training depends on what you want to do. You can do just ID, you can do ID and micro, you can do just micro. Um, but it's a slightly more onerous route into it now because the direction of travel for microbiology as a specialty is that we are more clinically focused. So in the old days, microbiologists would sit in their office in the laboratory and they would authorise stuff. You'd never see a microbiologist on the wall. But now the drive is to get microbiologists out and about, interacting with clinical teams, going to see patients. Um, And so the training programme has changed to allow that to happen. Okay, fantastic. So you obviously see adults and children? Yeah. 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 And and I suppose as a paediatrician, some of the times we have clear differentiation between adults and paediatrics. And... Within microbiology, where do you see the main differences? So it's difficult. I mean, most of our practice obviously is directed at adults. So that's what most people encounter during their training and that's what most people will deal with as um, 
a consultant. Uh, I came into paediatric microbiology because I thought it would help me get a consultant job, mm -hmm. if I'm completely honest about it. Tried to look for a niche where I could develop a service, found that I thought paediatrics here in Cardiff was underserved by microbiology, said I can do something about this. So we started new MDT, tried to get a bit more involved, building relationships with all the paediatric specialties. Um, so I think the, the, a lot of the differences people don't necessarily see because their contact with paediatric practice is relatively limited. Um, from my point of view, I think it's, it's about how you approach the child with infection that's very different to adults. Because mm -hmm. obviously as paediatricians, you all know that you know, non-verbal children can't give you a history and that signs in very small children might be very non-specific. Mm. You don't get that in adult medicine. So there's, um, it's working out how to approach that child and what might look like over-investigation and over-treatment in adult microbiology really isn't in, in paediatric okay. microbiology. Um, and even then, once you've worked out what's going on with the child, there are so many differences in, in how you make the diagnosis, about your testing strategies, and about how you treat them that actually you know people always say in pediatrics children aren't small adults but it's very much true in infection because then mm. you can't apply it you can't just take adult strategies and scale them down it really doesn't work okay thanks that's i think that's a good introduction um i think we'll just go to the main topic really and i wanted to talk about specifically a couple of different investigations one of them is blood cultures and yep. one of them is urine okay um so why don't we start with blood cultures let's um is, is the, the way that blood cultures are performed the same everywhere? Um, pretty much universally now, yeah. With the advent of automated um, monitoring techniques, okay. pretty much everywhere does blood cultures the same. So previously, uh, I, and hopefully I speak for some other doctors as well, had thought that um, when you send the blood culture, the blood goes to the lab, it gets put on an agar plate, and then we see what happens, see what grows and what doesn't grow, and what antibiotics work against it. Yeah, so if you talk to some of the um, more senior biomedical scientists in the lab, they will tell you that that's how it used to work in the old days. The blood would come in, they'd plate it out into a variety of places, they'd go in the incubator, and they'd be checked every 24 hours to see if they grew, and things um, would be worked, developed from there. That doesn't happen anymore because it's very easy to get contaminated, it's very um, workload intensive, the BMS is. Uh, so now you send us a blood culture bottle, we get it, we put it on a machine, at the bottom of the blood culture bottle is a little indicator, and what that measures is uh, CO2 levels in the blood culture bottle. Mm -hmm. As the CO2 level rises, the indicator changes colour at the bottom of the bottle, the machine reads that, says this blood culture bottle has got something positive in it, flags it up to the BMSs, they pull it off, and then start working on it. Okay, so then it's only that group that's got the, the positive indicator that get that work up. Yeah, so they get automated. Um, we do occasionally see um, blood culture bottles ping positive that don't have anything in them. So um, we see it particularly in haematology patients who've got a very high white cell load because they will metabolize, they'll produce CO2 and it will look like there are bacteria in there. Okay. Um, but we plate it out and nothing ever grows and we never see anything. But that's few and far between. If it comes up positive, it's probably got bacteria. Okay. And so then that process after that, mm. um, you've got your positive indicator there, you then pop on to yeah. what now? What's... So they get pulled off a machine um, at regular intervals throughout the day, starting at about half eight in the morning, the last ones come off at about eight at night, I think. Um, some labs will go 24 hours, but not all labs are as resourced for that as, um, as others. Comes off the blood culture machine, uh, and the BMS will start processing it. So the first thing they do is a gram stain, like the most basic of all microbiology tests. <laughs> put a bit of blood on a slide, stain it with a normal gram staining process and have a look at it and see if they can see anything in there, whether they're seeing gram positives, gram negatives, if they're bacilli, if they're cocci, if they're yeasts, if they're, you know, yeah. to try and get an idea of what's going on. 
um, the blood then gets some of the blood gets taken out and it gets plated uh, onto a variety of agar plates depending on the indications written on the, the clinical request form um, and depending on what they've seen under the microscope. Uh, so we've got a set of standard plates that everything gets and we might have some more specialist ones if we think they're indicated we think they're likely to grow something relevant. They get incubated, they get read for the first time somewhere between 18 and 24 hours and then about every 18 to 24 hours after that until they've grown something that we can work with. And so you mentioned about clinical information. Um, so me putting query sepsis isn't particularly helpful. It doesn't tell me very much because uh, that's the reason you sent the blood cultures. Yeah. So it doesn't tell you anything about why you send the blood culture. So I know the child is presumably yeah. septic because you sent some blood culture. Yeah. Further information is always helpful. Okay. Um, so you, yeah, as much information as you can cram onto it. And if you've got no information, that's fine. There's yeah. nothing you can do about it. Yeah. But the more information you've got for us, the better the results you're likely to get. In that case, I'll do better. Cool. Um, coming from you know being a foundation doctor, always sending an anaerobic bottle and an aerobic bottle. Yeah. In paediatrics, obviously, we're only sending one. Yeah. Um, how does that work? So actually, you're probably not missing very much by not sending an anaerobic bottle. Um, there was a paper uh, published a few years ago from a study that was done in Chicago, I think, where they took uh, aerobic and anaerobic pair from a lot, pretty much an unselected bunch of kids that came in with infection. And actually, the number of obligate anaerobes that you're missing by not taking an anaerobic bottle is very, very small. And you can risk stratify the patients that you think you need an anaerobic bottle on relatively easily. So mm -hmm. essentially, they're compromised hosts because they're immunocompromised mm -hmm. from you know, HIV or transplants or chemotherapy or whatever. Um, or they've got something abdominal going on with them. Okay. So if you think you know a surgical kid coming in with appendicitis or yeah. something, you might well take an anaerobic bottle because you might pick up a bacteroides or something. But actually, an undifferentiated mass of children coming in with respiratory infections or urinary tract infections, you're not missing very much by not taking an anaerobic bottle. Okay. So um, if we had those patients that we thought were particularly um, might use a, an anaerobic bottle, we're, we're, we would just go and get the one from the yeah, adult. Yeah, just go, and, go, go yeah. and claim an adult set. They're okay. exactly the same. It's got the same growth medium in, so okay. you're not gonna okay. you're not gonna lose any specific pathogens by doing that. Lovely. Um, the next issue that I wanted to bring up was volume of blood. Um, yeah. Uh, one of the uh, reports I get back is often that you know there was an insufficient sample or you know the yield isn't very good. So yeah. just hopefully you can clear up. Um, yeah. So that would be nice. Um, <laughs> but actually, the evidence is not overly strong about blood volumes and blood cultures. We know that most blood cultures we get sent from paediatric and adult medicine are underfilled, and that therefore means that we're not sufficiently powered to detect bacteria, so yeah. we might miss a lot of, of blood cultures. Um, there's a study done in the States in the mid-90s looking at uh, blood culture volume, and they did a sort of very complicated setup of one culture with just one set of blood in, and they took a bigger sample and divided it into other volumes. Um, and actually what it shows is that um, three mils of blood per blood culture bottle uh, will significantly enhance your detection of pathogens in 24 hours. So a lot of people will say one mil. There's a paper I read earlier where we're talking about um, about working it out based on child's body weight and therefore their circulating yeah. volume yeah. and taking somewhere between uh, 1.5 and 4% of circulating volume. <laughs> like who's got time to sit and work that out yeah. when they're taking blood cultures yeah. from a presumably unwell child. So yeah, a mil is probably not enough. 
three mils, probably our goal. All right. Per blood culture bottle. Um, and obviously, always when you're taking blood cultures, two sets of blood cultures, because that means that if we're detecting something in one blood culture that we're not entirely sure is significant or not, if we can detect it in two, mm. much more likely to be significant. Than... Okay. Um, I suppose what I'm thinking about, um, you know, little babies that yeah, come yeah. in um, less than three months with a temperature, yeah. and I've got a tiny little 24-gauge cannula in. Yeah, that and try and get three mils of blood out of that is not going to be particularly yeah. easy. Um, yeah, fine. I mean, there are always going to be circumstances yeah. where you can't get enough blood out, but more blood is always more better Yeah, okay. because it's going to increase your, your ability to detect bacteria. Sure. And there are some bacteria that come with very high bacterial loads, um, and they're very easy to detect, but there are some that don't. Yeah. You know, if you've got an occult bacteremia in an unwell child, if you can detect that early, yeah. the outcomes of that child are going to be better. Yeah, okay. One of the other um, common bits of feedback we get is that there are contaminants in the sample. Mm. Um, is that down to me not cleaning the skin properly? or yes. um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, So not necessarily that, but yes, um, a lot of people will ask, have you contaminated the laboratory? And that is virtually impossible. Okay. So the, the contaminants will happen at some point before they come to the laboratory. And with the best will in the world, you'll never be able to eliminate blood culture contamination. There are lots of steps you can do to reduce it, um, but you'll never be able to get rid of it entirely just because it's an you know, open biological mm. system. Um, when the, once the blood culture has had its blood put into it, it comes to us as a sealed system. Nothing else is going to get into it. Yeah. It's just a self-sealing bump. So if you've got a contaminant from the blood culture, it's either because um, your skin prep wasn't great, we know that happens, that's why people get canning site infections. Um, because you, the taker has mishandled the blood culture bottles, they've been doing it, and they might have wiped the top and left it for 30 seconds with alcohol wipe to dry, um, and then accidentally touched it with their thumb when they were setting okay. it up. You know, because children wriggle and they yeah. play, and it's difficult sometimes to yeah. get stuff out of them. Um, we occasionally see what looks like oral flora contaminating blood culture bottles, and our assumption is that people have sneezed on them. <laughs> Um, so yeah, if we do get contaminants, um, the vast majority, I would say, of our positive blood cultures are contaminants eventually. Yeah. Um, but it's just about good quality, sort of sure. puncture and taking those blood cultures in, the, in as an aseptic way as possible. So uh, I, my practice is to obviously clean and then wait um, for the 30 seconds. But what about the changing of the needle? Should we be changing the needle once we've taken the blood culture, changing the needle to make it a clean one to put it in, or was that overkill? It's probably overkill, because you're going to, the more steps you introduce, the yeah. harder it is to keep everything clean, yeah. I think. So I think if you've just got your, if you've got your needle in and you've got your vacutainer end on it, as long as you're not touching that and all it's doing is going into the blood culture bottle that you've cleaned and then taking yeah. it off and then going into another one, it's probably okay. Okay. I'm thinking, can most, most of the blood that that I take anyway is not is never with a vacutane. It's always on a tiny little baby with um, yeah, with babies. a needle in a yeah, syringe, yeah. and I'm taking it from the back of the cannula sometimes, yeah. um, and just aspirating as little blebs come out. Yeah. Um, and I suppose that has a chance for that needle end to be touching the end of the yeah plastic. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you know taking blood culture with needle and syringe is always difficult because. Aside from the, the sort of logistical challenges of getting blood out of the needle and the syringe out of a very small arm, you start to run the risk of needle sticks coming in and yeah. moving needles around and sticking them in tubes. Um, so we don't advocate it, but occasionally there isn't any other choice. Yeah. And that's fine. If there's no other choice, I'd rather have a blood culture than not. Sure. There are some 
clinical situations where I'm concerned that the child's unwell, it's most likely to be a virus, but there are some risk factors that are present. So I, I would do uh, some bloods, I'd send off a full blood count looking for a white cell count and a CRP. And I'll take a blood culture at the same time because I'm, you know, I don't want to prick the child more than once. Mm. Um, and so I uh, uh, have the idea that I will wait for the, the inflammatory markers to come back. And if they're significantly raised, then I'll send the blood culture. Okay. Um, is that all right? Can be. Yeah. So I think the first maxim is uh, treat the patient, not the results. Yeah. So if you go to that child and your first approach is this child looks sick, they might have a bacterial infection. Send the blood culture. Yeah. Because it might be that their white cell and CRP response is slow, yeah. getting a lag a bit, and then you you know, they've had some antibiotics, you've missed your chance to get a good quality blood culture. Um so if you're gonna take one and your pre test probability is such that you think you're probably gonna give this child some antibacterials yeah. and just send it. Okay. I mean I don't I can't tell you off the top of my head what it costs to do yeah. a blood culture, but it's not a vast amount. And given that we process 20 plus thousand blood cultures a year <laughs> the addition of one or two i don't think makes a great deal of difference mm. um and if it turns out they have got a virus then fine if the result comes back negative great um if it comes back positive you can always go back and reassess and say actually maybe there is a bacterial infection or maybe it's a contaminant um but the more information you can get about that child i think the better so i don't think there's any reason to not send okay. it unless it's really obvious that actually they don't have a bacterial infection at all Sure, sounds reasonable. Are there any other, before we move on to, to urine there, are there any other pearls you can think around blood cultures that um, we sometimes... Um... Yeah, so one of the most common calls that we get in microbiology is, uh, has this blood culture result flagged yet? <laughs> yes, um, I've happens, never made that call. No, and it happens less often than it used to. It used to happen more often when I was a junior. It happens less often now, um, which is good, and I like to think that's down to me. Um, but... The, the, obviously, you, the clinician is concerned about this child and wants to know what the blood culture is doing because it's going to inform what their ongoing plan is. Um, but the, the corollary to that is, when did you send the blood culture? Because it's all very well taking the blood culture. Mm. But if you then put it in a box on the ward and wait for the porters to come and get it, we're not going to get it for a long time. It's not going to go on the machine. Your 36 or 48 hour report isn't going to arrive until we put it on the machine, not necessarily from when it's been taken. Um, some colleagues in the lab uh, looked at blood culture transport times a few years ago. Um, and if you exclude the three biggest outliers from that set of data, the mean time from taking to arrival in the lab is 10 hours. Okay. And I think it's important to get across to, to everybody that's taking blood cultures that these are time critical samples. So you wouldn't leave a CSF lying around for mm. 10 hours because you've taken it and you need to know what's going on in someone's um, CNS. But similarly, if you've got septicine if you've got someone that's bacteria and can really sick why leave the blood culture lying around on the ward for 10 hours you've got a sick child in front of you you're taking the blood cultures find someone that'll take them to the lab for you because they'll get on the machine you're much more likely to get a rapid result even if we don't you'll get your 36 or 48 hour negative in a more timely fashion because they're with the lab five minutes after you've taken them rather than 10 hours so you know they're time critical samples they're from unwell children get into the lab as soon as you can okay and in the lab, when it goes on into the machine, it's a heated system, is it, to try and make yep. that so process happen? Yeah, yeah, so it's incubated to about okay. 37, 38 degrees, something like that. So it replicates yeah. body temperature. Yeah. So you take it to the lab and they might sit in a box for a bit, and but 
you know, if they're sitting in a box for an hour or so, that's not the end of the world because there's plenty of growth medium in there. The blood's still warm from wherever you take it out yeah. of. You will start to get things, but the sooner you can get them into a more hospitable environment, like an incubator, the better. Brilliant. Um, and that can move on to talking about urine. Cool. Probably one of the most common things that is sent in paediatrics. Just in general, um, yeah. In general. Uh, and I know there's lots of contentions about when you should and shouldn't send it. Um, you know, if we've got a, a source that we think is present, then probably don't need to send it, and it's just adding to, well, cost as well as investigations that don't need to happen, yeah. um, and potential antibiotics from that. So, what's your view on when we should and shouldn't be sending? Okay, it's difficult. Um, there, are, in adult medicine, there are lots of urines that shouldn't be sent because there is a lack of understanding about what a UTI is and how to investigate for it. And I don't think that's as prevalent in paediatrics. Um, and the nice guidance about assessment of fever under fives is very clear about when you should and shouldn't send the urine. So if you can refer back to that, I think it's fine. I think if there are uncertainties about it, you've got to think about, again, what's your pretest probability of a UTI? Is this urine going to alter your management? Um, and that, used to, that was a bone of contention for a little while. Um, when I was a wretch, and we would be woken up in the middle of the night by someone very well-meaning and saying, can I have this urine microscopy done in a minute? Mm. And that's fine, because that's what Knight says, it needs to be done in a timely fashion. I can't remember off the top of my head how quickly. Mm. But actually, you've got to think, is this test going to alter my management right now? And for a lot of urines, it's not. Not in a very short, sort of urgent space of time. So urines can be done routinely and they get done and then we've got a very good process for doing it in the laboratory even though we process upwards of 100,000 urines a year. Um, I think if you've got a child who is very unwell and you've got no obvious source then send it because it's a very easy sample to collect. Mm. You can do it non-invasively in most circumstances um, and it might well give you an answer if you've got you know, a three-month-old who's septic and unwell and mm. don't know what's going on with them. If it's a UTI, great. It's easy to treat. It's easy to diagnose. Problem solved. Um, if you've got an old child and they can give you a good quality history, because that's really what UTI is about, it's about getting a good history and having a very specific set of signs and symptoms, then yeah, great, send it. If there's diagnostic uncertainty and you've got an unwell child, that's fine, but I think there are some urines that get sent that probably should. Okay. And you mentioned about um, that three months then, um, and I think again when you look at the NICE guidance, whether that antibiotic then is going to be IV or oral yeah. um, and it seems you know f for me when when I've got a kind of a, a wellish looking child who's three months on this um, on that that age yeah whether they were a week earlier then they'd be coming in for IV antibiotics yeah. and they're a week later and they're gonna go home and, yeah. and have it orally yeah um, what's the current thinking about um, when we should be giving IV and, and and why in those ones so I think you would You'd give IV antibiotics on, on that basis to children that you thought had an upper tract infection, yeah. which obviously is going to be very difficult to diagnose, yeah. but if they're significantly unwell, the likelihood is that it's more likely to be upper than lower, so you'd probably give them IV antibiotics. If they can't take anything orally, yeah. so if they've got, you know, they've got vomiting, vomiting, which often comes with a UTI, then you give them something IV. Um, if you've got a relatively well child who's sitting on the borderline, I think it's very difficult to prescribe exactly when you're going to mm. give IVs or orals. I think if you've got sensible parents who know what to look for, you know, if their child's getting more unwell, they're going to bring them back promptly, then it's probably okay to give them orals and some, you know, look out for these red flags, get some safety net mm. advice. I think if you've got concerns about 
um, whether this is spreading, because obviously gram-negative sepsis is one of the biggest causes of, of deaths in um, neonates and infants, then I would keep them. And you can always send them home 24 hours later when mm. you've got something out of the urine, mm. you know, oh, it's a urine UTI. So you could hedge your bets a little bit, but it's very difficult to be exact about who to give IVs to mm. if you want. And uh, I know three months, sometimes sometimes they're very, especially boys, can be easy to catch a wee. Otherwise, the rest of the time, it's a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, unfortunately, parents will be waiting for four hours and then miss it. They miss the one time, um, yeah, yeah. And obviously, yeah. bagged urines, um, no use. <laughs> absolutely no terrible. Use. But if you've got a negative bagged urine, you know. Yeah, it's difficult to know. A negative, I don't think, tells you very much because then you don't know, you know, how long has that urine been sitting around? You know, how well has it been caught? The likelihood is that it's going to be full of contaminants and yeah. you're probably getting a positive and it's going to be full of mixed growth and you're no closer to, to generating an answer. If you've got a negative, then you've got to go back to your pretest probability and say, how likely do I think this is to be UTI? Because actually, if you're waiting around and you catch a bag urine, it doesn't grow anything, but the child's really snuffly and chorizal, yeah. they say, actually, it probably was never a UTI. I don't really feel very bad about this test result. Um, but if you've got no other way to explain it, yeah. then you might try again and work a bit harder to get a good quality sample. I suppose that's what that's one of the things that I find, uh, like one of my bugbears, is when they've got symptoms and sometimes you still hear, oh, I'm just going to, I better send it anyway just to check. Yeah. Um, is there, you know, having concomitant like uh, infections, is that likely? Um, it's not unlikely. Yeah. So, um, you know, people talk about Occam's razor and about only having one diagnosis at a time, mm. and then there's Hickam's dictum, which says, you know, patients have as many diseases as they damn well please. So people do come in with it, and particularly in children, you know, at this time of the year, every other child yeah. has got an upper respiratory tract infection. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just facts of life, isn't it? So yes, they could develop a UTI at the same time, and you don't want to focus on one thing to the detriment of the other. So I think if you've got a reasonable suspicion, and you're not just sending it as a matter of course, oh, we better send it just in case, then that's fine. But okay. the routine sending of UTIs with a low sort of diagnostic probability mm. is probably not very helpful. Okay. And um, just for understanding the process of what happens to the samples when it, yeah. when it gets down to the lab. So they appear with us um, in our urine lab, so we've got a whole room set aside for processing urines. They get um, graded almost about how sort of, um, it's a bit like grading maple syrup, it's about um, grading like how dense they are, about how thick they are, about what their colour is, because we have to dilute them out to a sort of a standard to make sure they get processed appropriately. Um, they then go on our automated analyzer. So in the bad old days, um, every urine would get uh, put onto a glass slide and the cell count would be done manually okay. by a vast array of BMSs. Mm. Um, these days, the urine goes into a um, into a tube and goes on our automated analyzer, which uses a sort of photo recognition system. So it knows that it's looking, you know, will sample a certain amount of urine from each sample, and will take photos and then we'll process that against its database to look for white cells and uh, red cells and casts yeah. and things like that. Um, we will take the results off that machine and anything that's flagged and says yes, this meets our culture criteria which are all um, described in our standard operating procedures, will then go on and get cultured. Um, there are lots of other things that get cultured irrelevant of what the uh, analyzer says. So from immunosuppressed kids, for example, so if we know the samples come from paediatric oncology, yeah. they'll get cultured anyway, because we can't rely on their white cell response to, to indicate to us whether we culture it or not. It gets placed out onto our um, UTI media, which is chromogenic, 
So it has um, various nutrients and things in it and also uh, indicator chemicals. So that as bacteria metabolize things differently, they produce different waste products, reacts with the indicator chemicals and goes a different color. Yeah. So ecolize will come up as a different color to others, for instance. Okay. So we can already start without having done very much work to identify which bacteria there are. Okay. Stuff that comes up positive and looks like it's useful will then go on and get sensitivity. So all of your sort of urine, gram negatives, recolize, and clepsiellas and proteases will go on and get sensitivities done. Um, there are some things that will grow in urine that actually aren't very useful. So if you've got lots and lots of epithelial cells in it, which suggests it wasn't a true mm. midstream sample, and you grow some coagulated staphs, that's probably just external urethral contamination, and we don't really do very much work with that because it's not very helpful. Mm. Um, so we go on and then sensitivities get done, then we will issue a set of sensitivities probably about 48 hours after the lab gets the urine. Okay. Given the sort of massive workload of urines, it's sometimes a bit slower than that, but as quickly as we can, we'll get a set of sensitivities done. Sure. Um, and where I've worked, most places, they have two bottles, either the kind of like universal uh, bottle with the wiped up, yep. or some, some samples with boric acid in yep. it. And um, when, when should we be using most? So we should be using boric acid for everything, okay. for all of our urines. Um, the cell count is much more likely to be stable with boric acid, um, and you're likely to get a better bacterial growth yield just with boric acid adding a bit more water. Just neutralize the pH, it means that everything's more likely to survive a little bit longer. Ah, okay. So if you've got a urine and you know it sits in the fridge for a few hours or whatever, you're likely to get a better yield off it than just in plain use. Okay. Um, is there anything else you think is useful to mention about urine cultures? I mean, what about the the white cell count and uh, I, I haven't kind of worked in in children's sesame unit in a while, but that always seemed to be when is it a significant number? Um, yeah, I think it's difficult with white cells because there are so many things that will give you white cells in your urine, and it might be that you've got overspill from the blood. If you've got a very high circulating white cell count, you get a high urine yeah. white cell count, and it doesn't really tell you very much. People always think about a hundred as a as a reasonable cutoff, but actually the reproducibility of cell counts in urine samples is relatively low. So it's difficult to to describe that exactly. We had we changed our urine testing SOP five years ago, maybe maybe a bit more than that. And we stopped giving out exact cell counts, and there was great uproar from a variety of clinicians uh, going, "I need that. to know the cell count so I can act on it." Yeah. We said actually, well, the cell count's not very reliable. So if we test that urine five minutes later, the cell count might be wildly different. Yeah. So we give a vague indication of what the cell count probably is. Um, I think you can look at the cell count and. And make some conclusions from. So if there's lots of white cells in and not very many reds and no epithelial cells, and you've grown something, yeah, probably does represent a UTI or at least a bacteriuria that's floating around in the bladder. Whether it's relevant or not depends on your yeah. signs and symptoms. Um, we talk about uh, looking at weight of bacterial growth. So greater than ten to the eight yeah. is probably relevant. A bit less than that might be relevant. Depends on on clinical situation. But looking at it just on the cell count, I think it's very difficult to to judge that in isolation. Okay. Any other pearls? For urine. Urine pearls? No, I think it's just making sure that you that if you're taking a urine, you think about what it's going to do for the patient. It's like, are we going to act on it? If you're going to start dipping urines, it's about making sure you know how to interpret a urine dipstick. So mm. I'm not very excited about seeing a urine that's got a bit of protein and a bit of blood in it. Mm. Renal physicians might be. Yeah. <laughs> but as as an infection doctor, I'm not particularly excited about that. If you've got lots of um, leukocytes and you've got lots of nitrites, that's fine. 
don't be fooled by the nitrites. There are some organisms that don't produce them, and you still get a UTI with them. So, um, you know, it's not always reliable. You can't just say it's nitrite negative, it's not a UTI, which you shouldn't be saying anyway, because you should be judging it based yeah. on the size of the symptom. Um, there are plenty of resources about um, diagnosing and managing UTIs available, so it's worth having a look at it. Okay. And, and empirical antibiotics wise, um, I, I know where we are, we've got. Yeah, just local guidelines. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's difficult to judge, particularly with um, urinary isolates. The resistance rates and susceptibility patterns are so varied. Um, Public Health Wales puts out a um, essentially an overview of it every year, mm. and their sort of urinary E. coli's and the E. coli's then go on to cause bloodstreams. And you look at the resistance pa resistance patterns, and you can't apply what happens in one area of Wales to okay. another um, and that holds true across the whole of the UK it just isn't um, generalizable so yeah always look at your local guidelines because they've been written for your local sensitivity pattern. Lovely um, well thanks very much for chatting about um, both those investigations um, have you got any other tips generally for trainees um, that would help you guys in the work that you do? Yeah, so um, we try to be as approachable as we can. Okay. So, um, you know, from working in Cardiff, there are always microbiologists available. So there are the microbiology regs are available nine till five most days. There is someone on call 24 hours, whether it's on the trainees or one of the consultants. We're here at the weekend. You know, if you've got questions, don't hesitate to phone us. Okay. That's fine. Um, if your question's about what's prescribed, then there's guidance available, so here in Cardiff it's MicroGuide, mm -hmm. you can get the app, you can download the guideline, tells you all about what to do, mm -hmm. if you then got questions, that's fine, give us a ring. Um, if you're going to phone us, the same as if you're going to phone any other specialist for advice, please anticipate what we're going to ask you and have the answers to hand. Yeah. Um, you know, I learned that very quickly as an F1, I'll <laughs> severe tellings off Dressing down. <laughs> you know, be in front of a computer, have the bloods open, have the notes to hand, have the drug chart to hand, Yeah. know what's going on. Um, it's going to help you, it's going to help us. Um, please don't phone us and ask whether your blood culture is ready or not. If it's ready, <laughs> we'll, if it's positive, we'll have phoned you. If it's not, you'll get an automated okay. response. Um, but yeah, if you've got questions, we try to be approachable. Lovely. Please give us a ring. Brilliant. Well, hopefully on some podcasts in the future, we'll be able to talk about antibiotic stewardship, uh, going into a bit more about um, kind of antibiotic groups and their modes of action yep. um, as well as looking at hopefully at kind of specific conditions kind of sore throats things that are really common that um, yeah. we sometimes run into some problems yeah, with that's fine um, to questions about it. Yeah. well thank you very much cool thank you see you later thanks bye bye Another fantastic podcast there for us. It's really great having a new presenter here and we're looking forward to hearing more from both Tom and from Gavin Forbes in the future. Just to summarise a few really interesting tidbits I found from there, it's worth noting that BMS, which Gavin Forbes was talking about earlier, refers to a biomedical scientist's in terms of the amount of blood, that's pretty hard to determine. As much as we can get seems to be the general guideline. Urine bags are pretty much worthless, so it's probably best not to use them because it's just going to be full of contaminants anyway. Sometimes it is worth sending a urine with kids who have upper respiratory tract infections because, well, kids always seem to have upper respiratory tract infections and it doesn't necessarily entirely rule out a urine infection. However, sending urine samples just in case isn't advised. And finally, 
it's important to follow local guidelines largely because the resistance to uh, antibiotics seems to vary region from region county to county and country to country so you might as well do what they're doing locally in your hospital you can find a worksheet for this podcast on our website www.dragonbitespodcast.com next week stacy harris will be having a chat with leona walsh the performance unit manager for the professional support unit anyway that's all for this week thank you for listening to dragon bites (laughs) 